Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. As always, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have with us a guest we've never had before, who is one of the nation's great experts on the Korean Peninsula. He's written widely. He is acknowledged to be one of the smartest guys we have to think and talk about Korean security issues. Professor Terry Roaring is at the Naval War College, where he is a professor of national security. He's been at Harvard, Columbia, and elsewhere, and he is a national treasure. Terry, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. So Korea is, uh, you know, it's this little piece of land uh, attached to the, uh, the end of Asia off the mainland of China, and it is although a small area creates a rather large challenge, security challenge for the United States that if you go back to 1950, I don't think we anticipated we, we would still be there 70 plus years later, but here we are. And the, the North Koreans, you know, Kim Jong-un have given us a gift of much to think about over the last few years, and the Korean nuclear weapons program has expanded rapidly over a decade plus. You know, they've jumped what what took us 60 plus years to do in missile technology. They've done in a rather short amount of time. They're expanding their arsenal for a nation of 25 million impoverished people. North Korea is proving quite challenging. And you, as somebody who spends your time thinking about the Korean Peninsula and the challenges, are sort of the right guy at the right time to come on Nuclecast because it's it's proving one of our greatest challenges, even in the midst of Ukraine and concerns about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. But North Korea does not want to be forgotten. So as you sit back and you think about this and you sort of ponder the future of the Korean Peninsula amidst these other challenges, sort of what is your take on where we are and where we're going? I think the biggest turning point, if you will, that we have been in over the last number of years here is that there has always been this hope of still possibly reaching denuclearization with North Korea. That goal is gone and and has been gone for a number of years. North Korea has said so very clearly that they are not going to give up nuclear weapons. Yet we still hold officially, formally, the United States, South Korea, Japan, even China, hold to the goal that denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is the ultimate outcome. Uh, But I think very, very few believe that that is going to be a possibility, certainly not anywhere in the near term, and even long term as well. 
and yet we hold to the goal because of implications for nonproliferation uh, and the NPT and any messages it might send to other would-be proliferators. But then this all raises the question of what comes next. Uh, if North Korea is not going to denuclearize, what do we do in the years ahead? What's the goal? And what are the possible directions that you take? And there is a major debate that goes on between Korea analysts where many will argue that the answer is more pressure on North Korea, that it is about shutting off whatever sorts of financial flows it may have. In particular, there has been a lot of reporting about its cryptocurrency theft um, and other types of cyber hacking that continue to sustain the regime and its nuclear and missile weapons program. But then on the other side of the argument are those who say, we've been doing this for decades. And what's the result then? North Korea has continued to grow its nuclear weapons program. And so we have to try some other route, which perhaps is to put some sort of um, plan together or, or offer together that might be able to get the North Koreans back to the table for some sort of negotiation. But again, the likelihood that that would lead to denuclearization is very slim in my view. So I think ultimately we have often and typically approach problems in international relations as problems to solve. But this is increasingly a situation where there is no solution to this that is going to, to make folks happy. It's about managing this situation, this problem in the Korean Peninsula, and finding a solution is not going to be likely in the near term. So as you think about, uh, you know, I, I remember going to the DMZ uh, for the, it was, I think it was the first time I'd ever been. And as I was getting the history lesson, I saw all of the incidents that had occurred, you know, because you when you tour the DMZ, you very famously go to that, to the spot that where, you know, the, uh, the American uh, servicemen were chopping down a tree to clear you know, clear their field division. And then the North Koreans came over and hacked them to death. And, and I, what I didn't realize is just how many incidences there had been because I, I didn't remember ever hearing about American responses. And so I've, I've long wondered if our, at least in my, you know, sort of layman's view of this, of if our, failure to respond more strongly to North Korean provocations, which seem to come at, at a point whenever we're not paying that much attention to them, there's a provocation. It sort of refocuses back on the North Koreans. It, it, is that sort of a, a wrong way to think about them? Is, you know, as we look at where we are today with this expansive nuclear arsenal, have we been particularly too soft on the North Koreans over the years such that they can act provocatively, grow a nuclear arsenal, you know, act in the way, you know, steal currency. I mean, they're the largest, as I understand it, they're the largest counterfeiter of U.S. currency in the world among the other sort of um, mafia type 
things that they do, and yet they seem to get away with it, and there's never a clear U.S. response. Am I reading this wrong? Am I too harsh on the U.S.? Well, it's a it's a really tough question, and and there are several different points of view on this, and 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 certainly, the United States has often restrained the South Koreans from responding. Uh, in particular, the November shelling of Yunpyeongdo, the island off the South Korean coast. This had followed the March sinking of the Chonan, and there was a great deal of evidence that South Korea had had enough, and they were ready to retaliate in some particular way against North Korea, likely airstrikes. I mean, my understanding is I have heard stories that the planes were on the tarmac ready to go, and the United States exerted a great deal of effort to try to restrain the South Koreans, because by and large, the concern has been for starting a broader conflict on the Korean Peninsula. And if there is some sort of response, depending on what it is, would this potentially bring the danger of an escalation on the peninsula and a broader conflict? Now, there has often been an argument raised that, well, a, resp a limited response might not have provoked that kind of escalation, but that if there is a belief that the South Korean response and or with the United States actually escalates the conflict, now we start a potential spiral that could lead to that. But how you respond, how you calculate those kinds of things um, are, are very difficult to determine. You know, this is, this is the nature of a crisis. Once you start those kinds of, of spirals, it's never entirely certain how they uh, develop and, and how they uh, continue. But again, there is an argument that, that in particular in missile testing, I have heard a number of officials on both the United States and the South Korean side say there has rarely been any sort of response or cost that North Korea pays for the missile testing in particular. Um, sanctions, yeah, but you know what impact do those have? And, and there are a lot of sanctions already in place and such. And so I think what you are seeing by the South Koreans and the United States as an alliance response more recently with the current South Korean president is that when there is a North Korean missile test, there is a much more vigorous sort of alliance exercise response that follows where there's a, a demonstration of alliance capability. But, you know, in the end, has that prevented the, the North Koreans from testing? Um, that's the difficult part here. And, and we think about deterrence on the Korean Peninsula we have to think very carefully about what are we trying to deter? If it is about deterring missile tests and nuclear tests, that's a tough um, goal to be able to achieve uh, because are these exercises necessarily going to raise the cost high enough for North Korea to back off from this kind of testing regime? But I think we certainly have had a focus on how can we make sure we send a clear deterrence message to North Korea that any use of nuclear weapons, any use of missiles on targets in South Korea or Japan, that would be clearly a crossing of a red line that would be met with a response by the U.S., South Korea, and the alliance. 
But I think ultimately it is a lot more difficult to deter testing than it is to deter an actual use in some sort of, of, of aggressive uh, scenario. So I, I've wondered, this was one of the, I was having this conversation with a couple of folks yesterday, and I've wondered why we haven't responded to uh, North Korean missile tests, which, you know, they often go over, you know, Japanese territory. Why have we not responded with with a ballistic missile shoot down? Uh, is it that we fear that what if we try to take one down, we'll fail or is there another reason that we have have not? Because I would think if we started shooting down North Korean tests when they hit the, you know, the territory of another nation, that would certainly be within our legal rights to do so. But I I wonder is there some sort of escalatory purpose or some perspective that the North Koreans would take that we causes us not to do that. And that is a, a really good question that I hear discussed as well. And, and let me also say, I should have said this at the outset, that these are my personal views sure. and not those of the Navy or the U.S. government. And so the question about the confidence level of shooting down a North Korean ballistic missile, um, you know, that's an interesting question. If we, if we did that and missed, that would be problematic. Is that the reason that we are hesitating from doing that? I don't know for sure. Um, is it that it could potentially be viewed as escalatory? That's also a possibility um, that could be part of this. Um, but the, the missile testing, I think, is, is a key piece to this. And, and just to, to piggyback on an earlier question that you asked about responses and, and sort of how to approach this situation. Some have argued that if denuclearization is really not going to be possible, perhaps we need to approach this in a different manner. And in particular, how can we have measures that are more in, the, in line with tension reduction or perhaps approaching it as an arms control issue? Now, not arms control in the sense that we would get a limitation on North Korean warheads, number of missiles, et cetera, because that brings verification issues into play. And that would really be tough to do because North Korea would never allow on-site inspections of any sort to that. But one of the other interesting elements could be a testing moratorium. And so that would be a way of managing the issue. And it would bring down the, the possibility of, of accidents, of miscalculations. One of the things that's always been sort of amazing to me is that for all the testing that North Korea has done, that there has not been an accident. Uh, you know, their missile tests have not always been successful. And had one of those things blown up and fallen on Japan, uh, that would really put a very different cast to, to what has been happening. But a ballistic missile testing moratorium, a nuclear testing moratorium, um, would not only be a tension reduction measure, but it would also help to put some degree of restraint on the future capabilities of the North Korean arsenal. Because to be able to advance its program, it has to test these things. I mean, you, you don't know whether this stuff works unless you are able to test it. Restraints on testing 
would also have the possibility of restricting some of North Korea's capability development. But of course, North Korea is not going to do that for nothing. And they're going to demand some sort of, of, of uh, return for that. And likely sanctions relief would be some element of that. But as you know very well, that there is not much of an appetite for offering incentives to North Korea. And so that's not an easy solution either to reach and to get the political consensus to do that. But that's another sort of approach that is a possibility that some have suggested for dealing with, again, the management side of the North Korean nuclear threat. Now it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking about North Korea. We'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwa Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. talking to Professor Terry Roy, and you were just talking about the challenge of sanctions, but I wonder if we're at a point with North Korea in particular, where, you know, it's been said, you know, the last time I was there, I was asking the South Koreans, hey, is, you know, what are the strings that China pulls? And one of the folks I talked to actually said, well, there, you know, it may be at a point where North Korea is actually, you know, there's that old adage, you know, the borrower is slave to the lender. But then if you borrow enough, the lender becomes slave to the borrower because you're so highly invested. And I wonder if we're at a point where China has less control because it, you know, that Kim Jong-un has taken that control and him, if the Chinese sort of put too much pressure on him and make him mad, they know, you know, how bellicose he can be. And so therefore they play with kid gloves with North Korea. And so therefore their ability to influence the North Koreans is diminished, particularly as North Korea has gotten built this, you know, extensive nuclear arsenal. Is is there truth to that, or does China still have significant strings to pull in North Korea? Sort of, what is the status of that relationship? Well, and, and I think that is really a crucial question that has a lot of elements to it and is much more complex than, and that relationship is much more complex than than many recognize. The relationship between China and North Korea goes back for decades. And China, of course, a major supporter of North Korea and rescued North Korea during the Korean War. 
but there's a good deal of mistrust on both sides. When you look at North Korea's perspective of China, they will see a country that normalized relations at the end of the Cold War with the South, and the North felt that that was a stab in the back. The Chinese supported all of the UN Security Council resolutions against North Korea that imposed sanctions. And so there are often voices in the US government that talk about needing China to solve this problem. China does have the economic leverage to make North Korea, to put them in a difficult spot. Although North Korea has shut off a lot of its economic interaction with the Chinese with its COVID lockdown, showing that maybe it would be able to, to survive longer than many people think. So when you go back through the years of, of the sanctions impositions, particularly the 2016, 2017, et cetera, China's anger at North Korea, I think was legitimate and, and a correct reading because when you look at all of the actions that the North Koreans took, that was a tremendous disruption to the security environment in the region in ways that worked against Chinese interests. When North Korea tested nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles, what did that do? Stirring up the security environment, it increased exercises in the region, it increased the possibility for trilateral cooperation between Japan, the United States, and South Korea. Um, it inc increased emphasis on ballistic missile defense, um, discussion in South Korea about acquiring its own nuclear weapons and possibly Japan following. All of those things not in China's interest. And so I think its unhappiness with North Korea was legitimate. And as another signal to that, when Kim Jong-un came into power in December of 2011, it took a number of years for China and, and North Korea to actually meet, for Kim Jong-un to meet Xi Jinping face-to-face, -face, whereas she had had a number of meetings with the South Korean leadership before that. Never had happened before. So I think there is a good deal of concern on the Chinese part for the North Koreans. But with that said, there has always been a limit to what China can do the amount of influence it has over North Korea, because the North Koreans, again, don't trust the Chinese and their nuclear capability is to protect the regime, not only from the South and from the United States, but also from Chinese intimidation to some degree um, as well. But the Chinese will still be restricted in their own view in regards to how much pressure they are willing to exert on North Korea because the type of pressure that it would take to force North Korea to give up its nuclear program would likely border on risking the collapse of the North Korean regime. And China is not interested in that. Maintaining a divided Korean peninsula with a North Korea that is somewhat friendly with the Chinese, that is going to remain a long-term strategic interest for Beijing. And so there is very little hope in my view that China would be willing to exert more pressure on North Korea. Do you think, so I've, I've wondered, how do we think outside the box about this? And I wonder, do you think if we, we, the United States could reach an agreement with the Chinese that says, Hey, you stop supporting the North Koreans, allow the regime to collapse. 
allow the reunification of the Korean Peninsula, and we will, you know, we the U.S. will will pull out of the Korean Peninsula. Do you think that's a that would be a sort of a deal the Chinese might take? Is it would that be something they'd because they know you know South Korea would be significantly weakened in the period that it took to reunify, It'd be tremendously expensive and you know time consuming. So. But then, you know, without the U.S. on the Korean Peninsula, you know, that's something the, the the Chinese certainly, I think, would want. But would it be a deal worth making? Sure. And and that has been a line of argument that, that a lot of folks have, have made over the years that or at least that there is some element to explore there. Um, a couple of thoughts to that. First of all, you know, while while there are. There are not many that would would not be delighted to see the North Korean regime go away. The word collapse is a loaded word. There are many, many ways that gets ugly, that gets violent. And I think really when you, you sit down and talk with Chinese, with South Koreans, with many U.S. analysts, collapse is really not the best option here because of what that could entail. I mean, we could we could plan 50 different scenarios, not get it right, and it still gets to be a very violent outcome because a collapse would risk the survivability of the Kim regime. And if there's one thing we're all pretty clear about, that regime would put all options on the table to ensure its survival. And so that, I think, would be unlikely to be a preferable option, even though, again, no one would, would shed many tears for the end of the North Korean regime. But how that works out would be a difficult piece to this. The other element that is a really interesting thing to think about with this, and, and this fits very well with this is the 70th anniversary of the U.S.-Korean alliance. And so those of you who follow webinars and public events, you will have alliance commemorations for the next number of months um, at your beck and call uh, that you could probably spend uh, many hours just watching all the different elements and studies and programs that are going to be be part of that. But your question raises an important follow-on issue of the future of the alliance that goes beyond the Korean Peninsula. And so there is a good bit of discussion, privately perhaps, but also among think tank analysts and such about the future of the alliance that goes beyond the Korean Peninsula. And so there is a growing concern for Chinese ambitions in South Korea, um, economically, politically, despite the fact that South Korea has a lot of economic um, prosperity at stake in its ties with China, is there still an important role for a U.S.-South Korean alliance in broader security terms for South Korean interests, even with a united Korean peninsula? And so I'm not so sure that the alliance would necessarily go away, that South Korea would be interested in that, even if there were a united Korean peninsula. But again, all of these things are interesting elements to possibly explore, but 
I think we're just not there yet because of all the different political and security factors that are part of that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I wonder why, you know, the the Chinese looked at the failure of the Soviet uh, reform effort and they, you know, they didn't reform politically, they reformed economically. I, and I wonder why has North Korea not taken, you know, observed the Chinese model and taken any steps to promote, you know, development and growth in North Korea, uh, you know, understanding that, Number one is the preservation of the Kim regime, but there still could probably be some reform efforts that could increase prosperity for the regime, which, as I understand it, the majority of of the the regime's, you know, foreign currency comes in through criminal activity. There, there surely has to be a, a more lucrative way to, you know, fund the regime. Is there a reason that they haven't said, well, hey, We'll reform economically, but we're going to, you know, like the Chinese, keep the CCP, we'll keep the Kim family. And that is a, another really important question that gets to domestic politics for North Korea that, uh, you know, many have, have suggested that, that has North Korea considered the idea of following a Chinese model or even Vietnam uh, for that uh, matter as well, that you can keep the political system, the authoritarian nature of that system, and yet open and reform the economy. And North Korea would have some, some economic advantages. In particular, they have a lot of mineral resources um, that would be um, part of that plan. There are also some reports that they have a boatload of rare earth metals as well that could be part of this, which is another reason why China would like to keep its economic and political ties with North Korea, even though it sometimes is, is unhappy with that. But the problem we think is that while North Korea has probably heard this pitch from China as well in the past, while they see that China could be the outcome, they also see that the old Soviet Union and Eastern Europe could be the outcome and have great fear that that could lead to the development of forces within the country that could lead to an unraveling of its control politically, also um, as well the, the narrative, if you will, of North Korea being able to talk about the, the beneficence of the Kim family regime and how they are great rulers and bring prosperity and um, you know, the whole sort of North Korean ideology that has been crafted and preached to North Korean citizens from cradle to grave, that all of that could unwind with this sort of opening up to outside economic forces that they might not be able to control. And an interesting side note to that is North Korea was very quick to lock down its economic ties and trade and other sorts of contact with China. And there was a clear health component to that um, because North Korea would have been very susceptible to being overrun by the pandemic had that gotten to any great extent within North Korea. Now the North you know, had argued that that was 
um, that they had been able to keep the pandemic out of the North for um, years and such. And, and no one's buying that story, but that their, their healthcare system, their public's ability to fight off uh, disease based on the poor health situation and the low immunities that that had, you know, there clearly was a health requirement to do that. But there is also a lot of speculation that there was a political motive behind this, that there were a number of individuals that were getting wealthy off the Chinese trade, illegal and legal as well, and a growing sort of moneyed class that was developing within North Korea. Also, this trade was bringing in a lot of information from China that was on thumb drives, DVDs, SD cards that brought in um, different dramas from South Korea and news broadcasts from South Korea, from China as well. And that the regime really saw this as a huge political threat that undercut the narrative that the North Korean regime uh, postures. And so the COVID lockdown was part of controlling that sort of ideological pollution as well. In addition, later in the year, they also passed another law that stiffened the enforcement and punishment of any sort of trafficking and possession of these kinds of foreign media, which again tells me that when you see that sort of effort by the, the government to try to control that intrusion of outside information, that tells you how serious and how concerned they are about the long-term impact that sort of piggybacks on your question about why the North Korean regime has been reluctant to implement wholesale economic reform. They have introduced some elements of economic reform, but not the broad scale types that they would um, likely need to do. And they have also established some special economic zones to try to attract foreign investment, but um, sanctions and other kinds of actions and just the, the uncertainty of foreign investment in North Korea has made all of this not very successful and North Korea not being a very um, friendly place for economic investment. And so I would suspect that this story is going to continue for the next number of years. Wow. Interesting. I have a whole list of additional questions, but unfortunately we're out of time. So Terry, thanks for joining us. We'll have to have you back to talk more about North Korea. It's, it's a tremendously interesting topic. I mean, it's, it's a country unlike any others and it's, you know, it's a, sort of the last one around. And so it's just fascinating. So thanks, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Adam. Thank you very much. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we will see you on the next episode of NucleCast. So afterthoughts, you know, it's the Korean Peninsula stays interesting, you know, and it's gotten more interesting over the last few years. And I, I often wonder, does, you know, does the Kim in charge, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un, do they, do they, as soon as they think that they're not being watched, is that when they start acting out, you know? So with Ukraine going full bore and with threats to Taiwan, is Kim sitting in Pyongyang saying, man, I got to do something. Let me test some nuclear weapons. So it was interesting to hear Terry 
talk about uh, what's going on in North Korea and what people are sort of thinking about it and some, some of the dynamics at play. It's just a tremendously complicated relationship that we clearly don't have a lot of situational awareness on. And we're sort of, in some respects, making educated guesses about what's going on and why. And so it was, it was good to hear Terry sort of give us some insights. Uh, I enjoyed it. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.